Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be looking at the more immediate implications of the shake-up planned in Britain's National Health Service. All the evidence that I've seen suggests that non-NHS providers can provide at least as good a care as the NHS. And we'll be looking at the long-term global future of food and farming. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. This week, we're missing one of our studio regulars, Diana Garnham, but my FT colleague Andrew Jack is here as usual. And we also welcome a special guest in the studio, Sir John Beddington, Chief Scientific Advisor to the UK Government. As Chief Scientist, you're responsible for, amongst many other things, the government's foresight think tank. And its latest report must be one of the most ambitious ever published about food and farming in the future with contributions, I think, from 400 experts in 35 countries. And even the executive summary is about 40 pages long. So I may be asking you the impossible, John, but could you give us the key conclusions in a few sentences? Probably the most important is that we are at a stage in uh, the development of humanity which is unique. For the first time, the demographic projections all coincide with the view that the world population is going to reach a peak sometime in this century. In a sense, that's rather good news, given concerns about resources. But at the same time, the conclusion of the report is very much that in the field of food production and the whole future of food, the current system isn't working. It isn't sustainable. It is actually overusing natural resources. And in addition... The sustainability issue is coming out in a large way that it is actually badly affecting the ecosystem services and the biodiversity in the world. The second point is really a constraint. We aren't making any more land. The only way one could look to significant amounts of increased farming land would be by essentially chopping down forests and particularly tropical rainforests, have hideous conclusions and implications for climate change. So if it's not working in those two very important and broad areas, is there any hope of making it work? Well, I think the first solution has got to be for focusing on sustainable intensification of production from farmland. We are looking to have significantly increased yields from the same amount of farmland. That's the only way we're actually going to meet the challenges. And let me just focus back for a second on the challenges and really one of the reasons why um, I commissioned the Foresight Report. The basic challenge is driven by global drivers. Um, World population increase, increasing prosperity, particularly in South Asia, increasing urbanisation, all are pointing to significant increases in demand for food in particular and associated commodities, energy and water. 
Food needs to increase its production by something of the order of 40% in the next two decades. Water availability, 30% in the same period. And energy use and clean energy demand is going to be going up by somewhere around 50%. And that means using every technology at our disposal, including genetic modification, (coughs) doesn't it? One of the things that is optimistic about the report is the fact that the scientific community now understands the plant genome at a level that it hitherto has never done. All the techniques um, that are now available for fast sequencing mean that there is an increasing understanding of the plant genomes of many of the key plants that, that are involved in world food security. So how do we do that? Now, one of the ways that you can do it is that this knowledge of the genome can be used to significantly improve traditional breeding. The other way is GM crops, and there's a lot of controversy about that in in the UK and Europe. It's interesting at the launch of the Foresight Report that uh, we had two briefings for the journalist community. The first was for um, the uh, UK-based journalists, in which we had numerous questions about um, GM crops. And when we briefed the foreign media, we did not get a single question about GM crops. And I think the message is fairly clear. This is an important issue for the UK and the European public, but the rest of the world does not see it as an issue. Let me then go back to the actual key question. I think that sometimes GM crops can actually solve problems which cannot be solved in other ways. In particular, they have the potential to allow plants to grow in difficult environments, drought-ridden or saline-infested. In addition, they have the potential for being developed in a way that they are resistant to certain pests and diseases, which means that one can avoid and minimise the use of expensive pesticides. So when they can solve problems like that and they meet the criteria that say that they have got to be safe for human health and safe in terms of their environmental impact, it seems to me it is obvious that one should be thinking about using them. And the thing that I've been rather nervous about, and I think the report makes very clear and advises, that one should not be a priori excluding some technology in advance. The problems are far too serious. Andrew, you've at least had at least a look at the summary. What, what struck you about it? I, I think some of the very bold, quite political conclusions, as well as obviously the kind of the huge international context of what's required, you know, it clearly goes beyond what can be done, as it were, unilaterally within the UK. But I guess one thing that, that came out of it for me from, from this report, and I'd be interested, John, in your thoughts more generally on your role, you know, at what point are you reactive to requests from advice from government? To what point do you start to see yourself as an advocate? You know, for you, is this report now done? Or do you see yourself as trying to quite now aggressively, you know, push for policy change where the science justifies it within domestic government departments, even foreign policy action with colleagues abroad? That's four questions. I'll try and answer them in succession. (laughs) Uh, The first thing is, are we in a sense demandeurs and deciding? Well, Clive, in fact, sat on the advisory group that made recommendations to me about what the next foresight reports would be. And the unanimous view uh, of the uh, meeting was that one of the most important problems that we should actually look at in the foresight report was the future of food and farming. So Clive will recall it well. So there is an advisory group. I consult with that advisory group and then... um, set up 
um, a project. But it, in setting up the project, we actually then go and talk to around government and say, where is the interest in the main departments and would they be interested in sponsoring it? Obviously, the g- governance landscape in Whitehall has changed since we first started that. But what we have is uh, two sponsoring departments. One, one is DEFRA, obviously, which is now currently have the responsibility for food within the UK, and obviously the Department for International Development. But both departments, in a sense, are sponsoring the project. They also, in a sense, are going to be looking to ways in which it is appropriate to respond to the project. The final sort of plug for the Foresight Group is that we do not just produce reports. We actually have a follow-up team that actually works both within the international community and the government departments to actually work out ways in which the suggestions and the challenges posed by by Foresight projects can be taken forward. It's such a big subject and no doubt we'll be returning to it, but... It's time to move on because this week we launch a new collaboration for FT Science with the British Medical Journal. And to kick off, Duncan Jarvis of the BMJ takes a look at the implications of the big shake-up in the National Health Service that the government announced last week. Over to you, Duncan. Thanks, Clive. Last week saw the publication of the Health and Social Care Bill. An opposition has been fierce with many commentators questioning how such a massive reform can take place when the NHS has to make £20 billion worth of savings. Those fears were echoed by two guests from the BMJ podcast this week, Jennifer Dixon from the Nuffield Trust and Chris Ham from the King's Fund. I also asked Jennifer about another topic that's causing controversy, the opening up of NHS cash to private health providers. All the evidence that I've seen suggests that non-NHS providers can provide at least as good a care as the NHS. So I personally think that competition between providers is a good thing up to a point. Now there is quite a separate issue, which is whether you allow competition uh, on price And the evidence there is quite clear, which is that if you have um, competition on price, then quality suffers because there is a race to the bottom on prices and people cut corners and quality suffers because quality is not as measurable as price. Um, But if you have quality in a fixed price market, which is what we've got now in, in England, then quality improves. That's the early evidence that we have on fixed prices. So I think on that basis, as a policymaker, I would maintain and slightly increase the level of competition amongst the provider, but maintain fixed prices, not maximum prices, which is which is something that's being talked about now with respect to the new reforms. We we think that would be the wrong step to take. So a message there for Mr. Lansley. When it comes down to it, the public don't really care about how their health system is organised. They just want decent access to it. I spoke to Chris Ham about hospital closures. There's bound to be failure under these arrangements because if you're introducing competition into a public health care system like the NHS, where there's a fixed budget, then if there are winners, there have to be losers. So we should anticipate that there will be providers that get into difficulty. So could this see actual closures of hospital? I think it'll be much more like what has happened, say, in the financial services and banking sectors, although I realise that may not be the most happy of analogies to use. We know, don't we, from the recent past, over the last two or three years, that when banks get into difficulty... Uh, they don't die, uh, they get taken over. I think in the case of healthcare, because we're talking about important public services and services that 
population still needs to have access to if the management of a hospital doesn't do its job well and that results in failure we're going to find a similar process of acquisitions of mergers of strong hospitals and other providers supporting those that are weak and uh, lending them their expertise to help them get out of uh, difficulty that will not rule out uh, the possibility, in fact, the likelihood of a reduction in the availability of some services in some locations. Those comments were an excerpt from the weekly BMJ podcast, and if they've piqued your interest, you can hear the full thing at bmj.com slash podcasts. Back to you, Clive. Thank you, Duncan. I suppose for FT Science, the key question is how will medical research fare in the new shaken-up health service? Andrew, what do you make of the scene? Well, pretty messy. And of course, I think, you know, one, it's enormously complex. Two, obviously, it's very difficult for individual actors of any sort, let alone patients who tend to be often older and obviously kind of debilitated when they're ill to be sort of free providers in the way that this whole market system works. But but nonetheless, I think that, you know, there are some interesting and exciting points of change around this. I think one of the structural problems in terms of research, it seems to me, is that the NHS and its whole remuneration and career structures hasn't really favoured ongoing medical clinical research as a primary objective for physicians, you know, whether that's on the collection of data, the analysis and structure of it with all of the whole IT reform programmes, and in terms of, you know, ultimately the promotion of doctors. And I think it would be great to see, and I'm, I, you know, I don't think this by any means does that, but, you know, a greater focus on that to improve patient outcomes through increased R&D in the NHS entity. John, although you're not involved in any way in the NHS, what's your view? Well, I think the first thing to say is that I think following the um, comprehensive spending review, if anything, medical research is probably the most healthy, if you'll forgive the pun. There will be an ongoing increase in real terms in terms of the amount of money that's going into research. I think the other thing to say is, of course, that um, within looking at quality, the quality of the UK research base in um, the health area generally is absolutely first rate and indeed it's world leading. And I think if you then look to the sort of um, measures and ask about productivity and say, well, what is the productivity of the base? It's world leading. But if you divide by things like GDP or population, it is stunningly more productive than anywhere else in the the world. One thing you said there brings us back to what we were talking about earlier, which is food and agriculture. Because as you say, health research, medical research, has done well out of the comprehensive spending review. And I think quite rightly, because it is a strength of UK science. But what about agriculture and food research? Because that was quite understandably run down during the era of food surpluses, the 80s and 90s, even the beginning of this century. Can you see a rise in the proportion of resources going to food and agriculture to compensate for the cuts that have been made in the past? The first thing to say is I I would query your comment that you think that the reduction was quite reasonable. I think it was myopic. So I would disagree with that premise. But in terms of the way things are going, um, I think it's the, as you well know, um, what was achieved for the um, science budget was that uh, essentially flat cash funding and the allocations to the research council has been made. 
One of the things that I've been delighted to see is that the BBSRC has taken the lead in putting up a £100 million uh, programme actually focused on food security. And in addition, if we look into the innovation field, the Technology Strategy Board has actually launched a programme which will involve cooperation between government departments, the research councils and industry on food. Thanks, John. Just going to say in conclusion, John, I was just very interested, you know, what's your, as you gear up for 2011, I mean, what do, what do you think of the two or three big scientific issues that ultimately will be taking up your time? Well, I really don't know at the moment. You know, I, I pointed out that in 2009, um, in April, um, the swine flu arrived. In 2010, uh, we had the volcanic ash incident. And in April 2011, being quite frank, Andrew, I haven't got a clue. What I do know is that it's always challenging, it's always exciting, and um, we'll have to see what happens. One of the joys of the job. That's all we have time for today on FT Science. Please join us again for more fascinating tales about the worlds of science and health next week when we'll be focusing on genetic research, amongst other things. All that's left is for me to thank my studio guests, Sir John Beddington and Andrew Jack, for joining us, and thank you for listening. FT Science is produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 